everyone. Welcome to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We invite you to join our mission to love like Jesus, and you can connect with us on social media or visit our website, csvineyard.org. Now for this week's talk, brought to you by Cody Pastor, Alison Grunendijk. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. It's so great to see you all here. My name is Allison. I'm one of the lead pastors here at the Vineyard. And we had some amazing announcement video ready for you, but we cannot get it to play. And so cliffhanger, first one in the morning. Um, We're going to send that out to you later via email. So just stay on the edge of your seats. It's going to be good, okay? All right. Uh, Let me just pray us in then this morning, and we'll get started here. (sighs) Holy Spirit, we just welcome you. Welcome you to this place. We welcome you in our minds and our hearts and our bodies, God. Jesus, we just ask that you would help us give our full attention, just our full attention to what you want to speak today. We pray against uh, messages of guilt and shame being the overriding thing that we walk out of here with, and we just pray for hope uh, to come and restore us in places where we just so desperately need it, God. We love you, Jesus. Amen. So this week, Isla and I were leaving a friend's house, and we had parked on the street, So I was carrying her to the car, and it was actually just about the time that school had let out, and so there were a bunch of, like, middle school boys all walking down the street with their backpacks on. And I kid you not, Isla is pointing at them all. And I'm like, yeah, you know, Isla, I think school must have let out, and the boys are just walking home from school. And she immediately turns to me, and she goes, chase them, mommy. I'm like, what? She goes, let's go. Chase them. I go, oh, brother. So I'm buckling her in her car seat, and I said, Isla, are you going to be a boy chaser when you get bigger? And she goes, yes, I am, mama. (laughs) And that she's so proper. Like, she talks like that all the time. If I say, are are you doing that? Yes, I am, mama. Sure can, mama. Oh, yes, I am, Mama. And I thought, oh, my gosh, it starts young. She's not even two, right? And I didn't teach that to her. Where did she pick that up? It was a really fun moment to just realize, this little girl is so full of desire. She just wants what she wants, and she's excited about life. And so my question to you this morning is, how do you feel about that word desire? When I say the word desire, what emotions come up for you? Are they good? Are they bad? Are they otherwise? And you know, in terms of our sexuality, culture sends a ton of messages to us about uh, what sex means, what it means to be fulfilled, what it means to be male and female. And I think this morning, God's invitation to us is to say, hey, church, let's not get 
the world's messages mixed up with my messages about how I created bodies and sexuality. I have something really good for you, but don't mix those messages up. And let's be aware that it's just human nature that we try to outsmart God. In all areas of our life, right, we outsmart him with money and with our plans and with our vocation, with our parenting, and we think that we can outsmart God in this area of sexuality too. And I just want to caveat this before we get jumping into this topic of sexuality today, that there's a lot of pain and there's a lot of hurt around this topic. And if you kind of think of it as like goalposts in football, the Christian culture has kind of missed the goal wide right because we've been too restrictive and too judgmental and we give far little, too little attention to the physical body and our physicality. And then it's like the culture misses the goal far left, wide left, because they're saying, let's just be too permissive, too promiscuous. Let's be just sex-obsessed and body-conscious to the nth degree. And really, neither of those views scores, right? Like, and Amos last night was like, it's good! And I was like, no, I don't want to do that. That's so you. But, yeah, like, God does not say, it's good! It's not down the middle. We're missing the mark. Um, and so, we're in this series called Deeply Formed, and if you are following along with the reading plan. You just read the chapters on wholeness, sexual wholeness for a culture that divides bodies and souls. And then you read about the practices for healing really that come along with that. And Rich Velotis in his book is trying to answer this question. I think it's up here on the screen for you. The question is how do we join spirituality and sexuality in ways that lead to greater wholeness in our relationship with God and with other people? And that is a huge question. Like, this could be an entire series, a whole six-week series, although I think I would burn you out on that. Um, But it's a huge question. And so if you haven't read the book, I just really encourage you to read these chapters because he does a really masterful job kind of just speaking to a really broad range of experiences, of challenges, of pain and struggle in this area. So read the book, really. Today, I want to jump into what the Apostle Paul says about sexuality, because I think he also does a masterful job of addressing how we are to live in our bodies and our sexuality to this brand new church in Corinth. And they're trying to grapple with, like, how do I live as a follower of Jesus in a culture that is pretty dominated by Greek philosophy and pagan practices? And so we're just going to be in the book of 1 Corinthians today. If you have a Bible, you can open it up. We're going to camp out there, but I also have a lot of scripture for us. It'll be up on the screen, so you can follow along with that as well. So let's jump in. 1 Corinthians, we're going to be in chapter 6 to start, verse 13. And it says, You say, food for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. 
By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in his body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. And he goes on in chapter 7 to say, Now for the matters you wrote about. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except for a time, perhaps by mutual consent, and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. All right, there's a lot there. But I want to draw on a couple of these kind of cultural narratives that Paul is addressing in these texts. And actually, in the deeply formed book, um, Rich Velotis uses the word um, sexual appetites or um, diets of formation. Basically, he's talking about how, what did we diet on to get the messages that we have today about what sex means. And the first diet he mentions is the starvation diet. And the quote here from him says, it's the diet that sees our sexual longings and desires as aspects of our humanity that need to be rejected, suppressed, or ignored. Sex and sexuality are territories to be avoided at all costs. And I think, unfortunately, this one has been adopted by the church in some ways, and even to mention sex and sexuality just feels dirty. We've just decided we're not talking about it. Let's not go there. It's taboo. On the other hand, um, he goes on to say the next quote here, if the starvation diet is all about repression, the fast food diet is about reduction. This diet is an attempt to reduce our deepest longings to just our physical desires. The fast food diet is about the casual posture people have towards sex and sexuality. It's the inability or refusal to see sex as a sacred fire that when not treated with care leads to entire lives and communities being burned. So we have these two ideas, starvation diet 
don't touch it, don't eat it, we're just going to waste away and not address it. Or we have the fast food diet, which is really, I'm just going to get what I want quickly, move on with my life. No connection, no strings attached. And it's, it's just that, you know, when you eat McDonald's every day, you're getting like a lot of grease and a lot of fat, but not the rest of all of the food that we have to enjoy. And so, you know, as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, well, what got so twisted in us in the first place that we would ever uh, hold these views and that these would just be so prominent? Because, I mean, God gave us these completely amazing bodies. We can smell, we can touch, we can hear, we can taste, and we can see. And clearly, we have these because God wants us to, like, take in and experience all the good things that life has for us. And so Genesis gives us this flyover story, and he uses Genesis in in the book. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it today because I've actually, you all know if you've heard me preach before, I really love those texts, and I've said quite a bit about them, so I'm not choosing those for us today. Um, But just know that the initial design in Genesis was exposure in our whole bodies actually wasn't vulnerable. There was no body comparing in the garden with Adam and Eve. And body parts also were not hypersexualized. So it wasn't like they were looking at each other with this consuming um, view. It was just they saw the parts as an integrated whole, and they appreciated each other's bodies, and they enjoyed each other, and there was just no sense of actual nakedness or shame. And now it seems that shame just permeates every single part of our stories and of our bodies and how we feel in our sexuality. And so... Today, I just hope that we can get some freedom from that, and I really feel like God wants that for us. So we'll go back to our text here and dive in. So Paul starts off by saying, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. So here he's addressing this Greek thought that sex is just an appetite. If you want to have sex, go ahead and have sex. It doesn't really matter because in the Greek view of things, everything in the material world was going to be destroyed eventually. It was all, like nothing was going to be saved into eternity. So it didn't actually really matter what you do with your body today um, because it's not going with you beyond. On the other hand, um, the people that Paul is writing to, they write back to him and they say, okay, well, so if it's bad, let's just avoid it altogether. And he says, nope, that's not the way to do it either. Because both of those views actually fundamentally give you the message that the body is bad. That this thing that God created, you should shut down, suppress, repress, and not enjoy. And I think the key here is in verse 18. When he says... This idea of becoming, oh, I'm sorry, it's actually verse 16. Uh, For it is said, the two will become one flesh. So again, when you're thinking about sexual union, you hear that word flesh, and you think, 
okay, well, so you're just joining your bodies. And actually, flesh is the word for body in a lot of other places in the Bible. But here, he's not talking about physical tissue. He's talking about, like, embodied personhood. Your whole being is going to be joined together. This was so radical for Paul to preach to the culture. To say, like, this is not just an act that you perform. This is a complete self-giving of yourself to someone else whom with you've decided to link your life with. It engages your entire person, your body, your mind, your spirit, your soul. And it's in the same way, like with your spouse, you share a meal with them, you share hobbies together, you share experiences, you do things together, but you also share physical closeness and intimacy. And so he's teaching this idea of surrendered, what I would call surrendered sexuality. I think Kurt used that um, phrase on our marriage journey call the other night. I thought it was so helpful. And you get that theme coming through in chapter 7 with the man submitting his body to the wife, but also the wife to the husband. This is so radical. And they just can't even grasp it because... Again, we would think as the church, like, let's just have a really tempered view of sexuality. Like, we don't want to think too highly of it. We don't want to think too lowly of it. We'll just shoot for the middle ground, right? But actually, this is like a very, very lofty view of sex that Paul is pitching here. So I want to keep going in verse uh, 27. So 727, jumping down. He says, are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. Okay, that's good. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. Which is kind of hilarious. Like, I picture him kind of jabbing. Now, he's not married himself, which is... Super interesting. So he's got an outside perspective, probably watching all of his friends try to navigate how to be married. And he's like, I don't know. I'm not sure if I want any of that, right? So, yeah, if you're married, great. Don't try to become single. If you're single, great. Don't try to become married. It causes a lot of headaches. So he's saying something really big here, though. He's saying marriage is not actually a social duty like you have been taught that it is. It's hard and a long journey, and he's not he's just not sentimental about it. I think there's a lot of sentimentality around marriage and wedding and all that in our culture, and he's saying, no, don't get yourself confused about what you're signing up for, basically, because the spiritual journey is one where you're going to keep messing up, and then you're going to have to repent, and God's going to forgive you and show you grace, and then it all starts over again, right? Don't we all know this? Mess up, I'm sorry, God, grace and forgiveness, try it over again. And he says, if you want to try to do that with another person that closely, like you're just going to get conflict after conflict after conflict because you're messy and your spouse is messy and you make an even bigger mess together, basically, right? But God's view of marriage is this amazing one where he says, you actually, like, don't pick the sexiest person you can find to marry, the person that has, like, the best chiseled body and has, like, physically peaked 
in their like sporty athletic ability, right? He says, actually, marriage in God's view is to see the potential in somebody and to say, I see who God wants to make you ultimately. Like, I see where this is going, and I'm excited about that. And not just I'm excited about it, but I actually want to be committed to being part of making that happen. So I will link my life up with you and be committed to making that happen. And so Paul obviously thinks super highly about sex, but the crazy part here is that he goes on to say, "Uh, this is a radical and high and lofty view of sex, and if you never have it, you're totally okay. You are a complete, whole, loved person, even if you never engage in the act of sexual intimacy. And this was as shocking to them as it is to us now, because in traditional society, there was no like individual honor or individual success. It was all family honor and family success. So essentially, you had to get married and have children to be anybody in the world. People thought very lowly of you if you were not married. And in fact, pagan widows actually got fined by Caesar Augustus after two years if they didn't remarry. Because he said, it's just it's such a burden to society. It's such a bad thing to be on your own. He's actually going to fine them. Single adulthood in that time was just totally illegitimate. And so we have, like, this amazing radical view of sex where, like, the founder of Christianity, Jesus himself, and Paul, the biggest proponent of it, were both single. That is stunning. They're saying, this is a perfectly good way to live your life. And I just love this quote by by Velotis in the book. He says, Jesus' sexuality was not diminished or disoriented or deficient. When some of us think of Jesus, we imagine that he didn't have any sexual energy in his body. For many reasons, we'd like to think of him as asexual. But if he indeed is fully human, he must be fully sexual as well. We tend to believe that unless one is having intercourse with another person, his or her sexuality is not fully manifested. But that is not true. Jesus lives the human experience to the full, connecting with others intimately, compassionately, and sacrificially. In his death in in the Eucharist, or communion, he offers his body as a gift. This message to the culture is that sex is about relationship and sex is about family. It's not about societal status and financial security as they used to think. And how does he hold this just super robust, crazy view of sex? Well, if we go on in chapter 7, 29 to 31, we get these really interesting verses, and you think, like, this makes no sense. We're talking about sex, and then you totally switch, and now we're off on a different topic. So check this out. 29 says, 
after he's saying, I want to spare you all the trouble of marriage, he says, what I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. And I'm really glad he keeps going because you're like, what? That would get people in a lot of trouble. Don't ignore your wife. That's not what he's saying. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. And those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. So, like I said, Paul is not suggesting to ignore the current realities of your life. Rather, he is saying, don't invest all of your emotional eggs and energy and hopes in your current possessions and in your current relationships. Because we live in the now and the not yet of the kingdom. God has come, but he still is coming. And so the things of the world are starting to pass away. It's very confusing, right? We all feel that tension of, of, the, of living in the now and the not yet. Like somehow, God, what you're giving me today is real and endures and it's good, but it's not all of it. It's not all of it. And so he says... You're getting a taste of a future family. And so that actually means that you are just radically free to marry or don't marry, to have kids or don't have kids. Because if you're single, he's saying your future is not staked on the fact that you have an heir. And that's what it was. Like to be single back then was a huge sacrifice because it meant I don't know where my stability is coming from. But this is a way to say, no, God, I trust that my ultimate security is in my future hope in heaven with you and in your family. And for married people, he's saying, hey, you guys don't have to place your hope in your kids. Ouch. Like, that one hurts. I think we do that sometimes. He says, nope, it's not about hope in your kids. Rather, it's that your kids are a sign of your hope that God has not abandoned the next generation. God's not abandoned this world. So, without God, sexuality is just only ever going to be about the here and the now. There's just no thought of tomorrow and what that might mean. Um, and so I think that's why our world is so obsessed with sex and love and romance. It totally sells because we're looking for that gratification instantly. And we want to know that we're okay, that we're loved, that life matters. We're looking to fulfill that meaning. But God is promising us this future banquet diet. And that's the third diet that Volotus talks about in the book. And we're just reminded, like, from the very beginning, you were meant to be in just rich, deep connection with people. And that's not going to have to be restrained um, when it's done in a way that is the way I designed it. So, question for us this morning, I think, is why 
when we hear these passages, I, I think that they're pretty familiar. Probably if you've grown up in the church, you've heard these messages. Why do we struggle so much to really move this information from our heads down into our hearts and actually like let it change the way that we're living? And again, I think it's because we like compartmentalize Paul's teachings with um, like just what he was saying to those people for that time, and we just don't look at the larger narrative. So I want to real quick just fly over a couple things that I think are super important for why, how, how we can really hold on to this message. And the first is that I think we just fail to remember that we're made in God's image. So back in Genesis, God says, 1, 26 to 27, he says, then God said, let us make human beings in our image, that they will be like us. In the image of God, male and female, he created them. And then he goes on to say, actually, oh, I'm sorry, that was both, that was both verses, right? I got to look this up a second. Essentially, when you read that, you've got plural pronouns in verse 26, right? Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. And then verse 27, really crunchy paper. 27 says, so God, singular, made man in his singular own image. In the image of God, he created them. So what's going on there? That's a little confusing. But basically, God is saying, I am both plural and singular, and so are you. And that's a trippy idea. I get it, right? And I think when we try to explain the Trinity to people, like, there actually aren't very good analogies because it is such a big idea. Like, how can God be Father, Son, Holy Spirit? They're all together together. They're all one, but yet they're actually three parts. Any analogy I've ever heard just breaks down so badly with that. But God says, just like me, I made you to be whole, like a whole person, but also you are body, you are soul, and you are spirit. Your body is like your blood and your nerves and your brain, right? Your soul is your intellect, your ability to hope and dream, your ability to think about a future, and then your spirit. Your spirit is like your breath. It's like your life, like the thing that animates you. And actually, it doesn't work very well. Even like scientists and psychologists have tried to like figure out where does the, like, where does consciousness start and where does the brain end and how does this all work together? And they really can't figure it out. So there is some element of mystery to all this, where we're just, they're separate, but they're one. And I just think that God is, has something to say to us in that, that he's saying, like, to relate to your body well, you can't, like, try to do that without engaging your mind, your soul, your spirit. It's got to all be connected, and right relating is what we're after here. And same thing with maleness and femaleness. Like, I don't know how this works because, honestly, I kind of image God as a man, and it's harder for me to image him as, like, female. 
But somehow he says, I created women and men, both in my image. And there's something of both of the sexes that is enhancing how we experience God. And it's not to say that you need a man or a woman to, like, complete you. That's not the message. But there is, like, if you think about it, you came to church with all women, or you came to church and it was only men, like, something would be super lost in that, right? There's something way more robust and whole when both of us in our sexes are represented here. And the last thought, really, I have for you is, we said it at the beginning, desire. You were created out of desire. Have you ever thought about that? Like, God does not have needs. He only has wants. He doesn't need anything. He is complete within himself. So if God only has wants, then he wanted you. And he wanted you to exist. And you actually didn't get to, like, say, yes, I'll, I'll, I'll be alive, <laughs> right? Like, none of us actually, like, we're breathing in and out here, and none of us said, like, yes, I will breathe. Yes, I will exhale. We were, God said, I want you. I made you, and you are here. And that means he didn't create us because he was lonely. He didn't create us because he was bored. <laughs> like, he wasn't just, like, sitting up in heaven like, oh, gravity, that's a cool idea. Let me just try to try this out. Cool, okay. Now I'm, now I'm just endlessly entertained by, by gravity. Okay, now I need to make some people because they're really entertaining to me, which we probably are if, you're, if we're honest about that, right? He probably gets more than a few laughs, but that's not why he made us. And so if, if that is true, then that means desire is good. And I think that is probably the place that's hardest for us to go. At least for me, like, I just absorb these messages that if you are too passionate or too desiring, that you just, just you got to stuff that in, like, squelch that out, right? But here's the difference between... God's good design for desire, and I think how we, like, see it in the world. Because we do. We see desire going totally haywire. We see it wrecking people's lives. If you desire cocaine and you become a cocaine addict, you will blow up your life, right? If you desire to only eat cheeseburgers every single meal, every single day, that will also probably not end well for you, right? But here's the difference, and this has just been so helpful to me. God's good desire when we're experiencing that, that will produce in us a desire to create something. And desire that is not aligned with God is really just more for consumption. That will drive you towards consuming something. You'll get an appetite met and you'll move on. But true, beautiful desire gives me this creative energy. Here's another way to, to check this for you guys. Are the desires that you have the result of delight in God? Because in Psalm 37, God says, take delight in me and I will give you the desires of your heart. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say, know me or even obey me and I'll give you what you want. 
Because if you think about it, you can know somebody and you can obey them, but you don't, you don't have to take any delight in them. In fact, you can know somebody and obey somebody and hate them. And so I'm just so drawn to this idea of delight because God is saying, like, I'm not saying obedience is bad and knowing and knowledge is bad, but I think God is saying there's something better. There's actual, like, delight. Delight means something more. You know, we, like, if you think about what are delightful things, like little kittens or um, your kids are delightful sometimes, not all the time, I know, Um, A symphony is delightful. The river is delightful. Mountains are delightful. All these things, when we feel that delight in them, there's this desire to take care of it. We're not trying to consume it. You know, like, in fact, when I, like, see a beautiful scene, I'm like, I want to go home and try to paint that. Like, that's that desire and delight being transferred into something creative. I'm not, like, trying to consume it and make it mine and make it serve me. I'm trying to produce more and more of that beautiful thing that I see. So I think we have duty and fear and obedience, like, so deeply woven into our hearts when we think about sex and sexuality or our bodies that this concept is just really hard to grasp. And I know, like, I'm somebody who's had probably at best a very neutral relationship with my body. Um, I don't know about you guys, but, like, I will go without eating, even though I'm hungry. (laughs) I will not take a nap, even though I'm exhausted. Um, And that seems like a little thing, but really, somehow I got a message that it's not, I'm not worth taking care of myself. That my body is not deserving of a snack or not deserving of a nap. And so I've been on this journey. Like, I, I started doing a skincare routine. Oh, my gosh. I had to fight against so hard the message of, like, this is superficial beauty. This is just a waste of my time and my money. I shouldn't want this. I shouldn't do this. But I said to my friend the other day, I love washing my face. <laughs> I have discovered this is so fun. Like, and so I do the toner and I do the moisturizer. And I'm like, this is one of my favorite parts of my day. But I still, again, I had to fight those messages until God was like, Allison, I care about that. I care about that, so you can care about that too. I just think that we miss delight and joy because there's pressure and there's shame. And I think our ability to think rightly about our bodies probably actually really is connected in how we can delight in Jesus, how we take delight in his good things. And so if you're struggling to value your body, I would say like maybe you just need to put yourself in the path of something really delightful, like spend time painting, garden, hike, jump on a trampoline, um, cook something, Go to a concert. Do you guys miss concerts? Man, I miss concerts in this season. I know some of these things feel really hard. I remember being in a cornfield of 20,000 people at a Mumford & Sons concert, and I got home after that experience, and I said, Amos, that was, like, worshipful. And I didn't mean, like, we weren't worshiping the musicians, right? My whole body was just in awe and delighting 
in what was happening around me. And it was, it was the people I was with. It was the good food and wine I was drinking or beer or whatever we had that day. It was um, the crowd around me, everybody raising their hands. And really, it was the fact that they're singing me a narrative, but it's touching my body. Like, when you're at a concert, you can, like, feel the pulse through your body, right? It's an embodied whole experience. And it was a transcendent moment. And I just want you guys to know, this is what we're made for. That's what you're made for. You're not made to just know about things. You're made to have this vibrant, rich experience of them. And that's what God wants for you. He so does. He wants to be with you so much so that he chose to actually put himself into a body and come to earth. That's also very crazy. No other God valued human physicality so much that he said, I will go and be in one of those. Not only will I walk around and live in it, I'll actually die in it, and I will give you myself. That's how much I want communication, communion, union with you. So I think if we're honest, this all feels pretty out of reach. And it's because there's a lot of pervasive sexual brokenness in our culture. And I'm going to actually have Wes and Alicia come on up and just lead us into a space of worship. Um, But as we do, I just want to say, like, as your pastor, it's not... I, I am not numb to or deaf to the pain that you all have in the area of sexuality. Like, I've heard your stories. You've shared so bravely with me um, stories of abuse, stories of harassment, stories of your parents, um, maybe modeling things that were shameful or embarrassing to you, um, I've heard stories of just struggle to love your body and body image issues and stories of eating problems and confusion about sexual identity. All of these things touch us. And so I know as I'm standing here talking about desire, some of you are just like, I, I can't really access that because it's too painful. You've actually had real trauma. And I just want to say, I see you, I know you, and Jesus sees you and knows you in that space too. And I think a place to start is just recognizing and naming some of those deformed or disordered sexual messages that we got in our life. And and Belotus has amazing kind of practices in that book, but this is one of them. He says, you have to start with saying, this is what I was told, and that's not actually who God is. It's not actually what God thinks of me. It's not actually what I'm being invited into. And so I know it's it's scary and it takes some bravery, but just wherever you're at, I just ask that you get into a prayerful posture. You can close your eyes, keep your feet just centered on the floor, put your hands out if you need to, but just really want us to begin to get some freedom from those messages today.
So God, would you just bring to mind right now for us the disordered or deformed messages that we got about our bodies, about sexuality, about how we're supposed to relate to each other. And as Jesus is bringing these to mind, just see if you can imagine him with you in those moments, in those messages, and just see what he would say to you or what he would do with them. many of us, this is going to be a multi-step process of healing. And so I would just encourage you, if God is speaking to you, just stay in this space with him and, and just take this conversation into worship as we sing together now. Thanks again for listening to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We hope you share this with your friends and family and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.